Hey, Curb the Binge listeners. This is Katya, your host, and you're listening to Curb the Binge, the podcast. But you know that already. The song that you just heard was, it was a piece from a song called Mirrors in the Sea. Um, It's the equivalent in Portuguese by a handpan player called Cabeçal, and you can find um, more of his music at Cabeçal Handpan Music. It's a a YouTube channel. So if you just search K-A-B-E-C-A-O dash handpan music, and um, I don't get paid anything for saying that. He's um, a very dear friend of mine, and I love his work. Um, It just always helps me to kind of transcend the small desires of my mind and the clinginess of my mind so that I can really tap into something a little bit greater. And I'm thankful to him for that. And um, I just wanted to read to you a little bit um, about this song. So it's called Mirrors in the Sea. And he says that um, he wrote it as a, let's see, what does it say? It's a new piece I've been working on. Is about It's about reaching our inner cosmos and accepting what goes on inside. And I really um, couldn't have had a more kind of on-point meaning or goal today because it really is, it can be hard to look at what's going on inside of us and to really see, gosh, I have, you know, all that ugliness that I judge in other people all of that um, insanity and darkness is within me. And I somehow am going to have to grapple with it or deal with it or face it, first of all, in here. And um, then it sort of becomes clear that this illusion that we have to fight some outside fight is really just an illusion. And that the real landscape is inside and that there is so much there that is, you know, I mean, to say that it extends far beyond who we think we are is really, truly an understatement of, uh, of, you know, big and kind of ridiculous proportions. So if you listen all the way through, um, this podcast, I'm doing the interview or I'm, I'm, Um, sharing with you the interview that I did with Susan Pierce Thompson, who is um, somebody that I've been following for a while, and maybe you have too. She's really big on the scene right now with her research. But if you listen all the way through at the very end, I will uh, play the entire piece for you, Mirrors in the Sea, the hand pan um, by Cabasau. And the hand pan, if you don't know this instrument, It's really incredible. It kind of looks like a UFO. It's pretty big. Um, It can fit on somebody's lap, but it certainly kind of spills over the edges. And it's made out of metal, and it has these indentations at the top, and uh, they create different sounds. So that's what kind of creates this very ethereal um, experience. And if you've listened to podcasts before, the the intro music that I've used in the past, which I don't know why I've never given a, a credit or a kind of a shout out to my friend Maria Levitov, 
who recorded that introduction and um, and the outro music as well and the transition music. So big um, love to Maria. You can find her at uh, soundcloud.com slash what is it? Slash Maria dash Levitov, L-E-V-I-T-O-V. If you love music as much as I do and you appreciate that hand pan sound, then these two folks I just mentioned are some really beautiful souls who are working with this instrument, not just to bring beautiful tunes to the world, but to really heal, bring healing and um, to accept that our inner cosmos uh, in the words of Kavasa. Okay. Now, what's next? Um, well, I have this interview for you, and it was really big for me. I have been following Susan Pierce Thompson's vlog, her video blog, for a while, and, you know, she has a very kind of scientifically backed approach, and she really believes that this is um, the best way she knows to work with binge eating. And I so appreciate her sincerity and her authenticity and her, you know, it seems pretty clear that she truly wants to help um, people suffering with all kinds of eating addiction and eating stickiness um, when we get caught in the thorns there. And so I'm going to bring you that. I just want to share with you a little bit about, you know, what I've been going through lately. And that's um, this real sort of seeing, like I was saying, you know, all of this darkness inside of me and really how it's not about the food for me, right? It's really kind of goes way deeper into something, um, that is, you know, I can, I can put all kinds of labels on it, but I don't want to judge it either. I just will say that, um, you know, when I signed up to really start looking at this stuff, I didn't exactly realize, maybe I did, but I didn't in my mind realize just how kind of brutal and merciless it would be at points and how you can't just heal one thing. You have to look at everything, or at least that's my experience that, you know, when I signed up to heal this binge eating, it seems like, you know, all of my crap and my junk have been um, sort of broken up and lifted to the surface so that I can now look at it. And that's not a pleasant experience. I've spent a lot of time crying in my bed. I've spent some time binging. I've spent um, some time crying out for help to people that love me and um, and thankfully they've all been very understanding. I'm blessed with that, you know, and, and, and right now what I've come back to, you know, just in this moment in time is that, you know, gratitude, deep gratitude for what already is, is a real healing balm for so much of our suffering. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't work um, to, to take away all the pain, to take away the sadness. And yet it works in a very kind of subtle and 
like a like an angelic way that it just shows us that through all of that the light shines and that's what I want to bring to you today that no matter where your path takes you through all of this the light does shine the light shines okay without further ado here is my conversation with Susan Pierce Thompson remember to listen to the end to hear the full length version of Mirrors on the Sea. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Curb the Binge, the podcast. I'm your host, Katya Slavinskaya, and I am so honored to be here today with Dr. Susan Pierce Thompson. She is adjunct associate professor of brain and cognitive sciences at the University of Rochester and an expert in the psychology of eating. She is president of the Institute for Sustainable Weight Loss and CEO of Brightline Eating Solutions, a company dedicated to sharing the psychology and neuroscience of sustainable weight loss and helping people live what she calls happy, thin, and free. She is now author of the forthcoming book, Bright Line Eating, The Science of Living Happy, Thin, and Free, which is due to come out on March 21st of this year, 2017. And um, hi, Susan, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Katya. It's so good to be here with you. Awesome. You know, I just, um, that's kind of the formal introduction so everyone knows who you are and then who you are to me. I just want you to know, I, you know, a, a few months back, I got an email from Ocean Robbins and I get his emails all the time. And I just started, you know, I listened to this uh, free video series that you had. I watched that. And then I just started following you religiously. And um, I follow your vlog, read your emails. And, um, and I just really respect what you do. And Part of that, it's not just this, you know, this incredible uh, body of research that you source and that you talk about and how well-backed your, um, your information is. It's also that you are so honest and candid and your vlog is like, you know, it, it's not only food for the mind, but it's also food for the soul. So I just want to thank you for everything that you do. Oh, so sweet, Katya. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. What's that? What a treat of an introduction. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and just for, for everybody um, listening, I just want to say that, you know, I'm not an academic myself yet. And, and one of the things that academia tends to do, especially in this field that's so vulnerable, binge eating, is to make me feel alienated. And so what I love is that your material does not do that. It's so like for the masses, it's so accessible. And so um, I just want to jump in and talk to you about your new book, because that's going to take the accessibility really to the next level. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting you mentioned that because you know, I'm, I'm now, you know, I'm in the field of weight loss. I mean, I guess I was not really before I was a tenured psychology professor and I taught all kinds of things, um, including a course on the psychology of eating body image and wellness. But, um, but being in the field of weight loss, it does strike me 
how few people who espouse whatever are speaking from like personal pain. And I, yes. and, and I'm, I'm going to sound really judgmental here and say that I think a lot of them think they are because whatever they had five pounds to lose or cause they used to drink a big gulp every day or whatever. And, um, and, and just knowing the susceptibility scale, it's some, it's something that it's my ears have become attuned to people who are espousing methods of healthy eating, but have brains that are really not that susceptible to the pull of addictive foods. And so they're talking about doing things with an ease and with a, like an assumption that it should be this way for everybody. Yes. It comes from their own experience. And it's, you know, we all speak from our own experience, but I just have this ear for like, you have no idea. <laughs> you have no idea what it's like to try to restrict your eating and then find yourself like binging on condiments after a meal because you've promised yourself you wouldn't eat any more food. So now you're eating mustard. Like you have no idea what it's like to have a brain that drives you to do stuff like that, you know? Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, totally. it's one of the things I point out in my book that's coming out is, you know, after you learn about the susceptibility scale and how different brains are differently susceptible to this crazy food world that we live in now, where, where we have these frankenfoods that we all have to contend with. Different brains um, respond differently to those foods and you know, become sensitive to, you know, usually in some kind of book or lecture, someone who's talking about healthy eating will give some clue about their own journey with it. And if you yes. don't hear struggle in their story that matches yours, it's probably true that the solution they're espousing that works for them is not going to be potent enough for the way your brain works. That is such a great point. And I mean, that back to your vlog and how, you know, that's what I really love about it. One, it makes me feel like I'm definitely not alone, you know, because you really speak about experience from your own life that, I mean, honestly, I'm blown away that you've you know, gotten from where you were to where you are now, because your past, which you're very candid about, was not a smooth ride. <laughs> it sounds like. It was a lot of things, but smooth ride isn't one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, you know, when you're working with people, that gives you this edge of, um, of relatability. So the, the fact, you know, and I, that's one of the perks of my job is that I got to actually um, have a, you know, a copy of the, the, the book electronically sent to me before it was even sent to print. So I got to read, um, through it and I'm just, you know, I'm blown away because you tell your story. That's what the book begins with. And you're so honest about your past and that, you know, that alone is like, okay, I'm not just talking to somebody who, um, is speaking from their high horse. It's like, I'm talking to a friend. Yeah. I remember, you know, all my friends who I, I kind of had friends throughout my life that also had struggled with uh, different eating disorders. And it's this conversation, you know, there's a kindred spirit there that's struggling with something. And so I, I, I get that from you in the book, but then you dive into, which I think is so powerful, you dive into the science of why our brain sabotages our repeated efforts at losing weight, um, gaining food freedom. And even if weight loss isn't an issue for, for some of us binge eaters, it's not, but the, the, um, the feeling of neutrality around food. So you dive into that science. Can you just 
tell us a little bit about how you went from this raw experience of such a such a crazy journey with food to actually um, sinking your teeth into the science around this? Yeah, that's a great question. It, it was a gradual process, Katya. It, um, it, it really unfolded organically over many, many years. I mean, when I, starting this Bright Line Eating thing was really a trip because as it started to take off exponentially, and this has been just a, a galloping mm-hmm. horse right mm-hmm. from the beginning, wow. um, you know, I, that for me, there's been this feeling of sort of destiny to it. Like I, I was sort of meant to do this. And, and as I look back, there's so many other things that at the time seemed like flukes or, or nuisances or failures in my life right. that are now serving me. Um, and at the time, they like seemed, what? well, like for example, that, you know, um, well, that, that my academic career got derailed. I mean, I, I got 4.0s at UC Berkeley and spoke at the graduation ceremony and got a free ride to any graduate school I wanted to go to, turned down John, Johns Hopkins, turned down all these other schools, chose the University of Rochester, which at the time had, in my estimation, the best program in the world in brain and cognitive sciences. I think it's still re- ranked in the top three. And um, got my PhD among a bunch of other people who later went on to get faculty appointments at places like UC Berkeley and Brown and Stanford and Michigan, you know, whatever, all these schools. Right. Yeah. And at the time I was binging pretty viciously, um, binging and recovering from the binge all through graduate school. And that um, really hindered my productivity just in terms of pure, like publishing papers. Um, I did some seminal work and it, you know, got, ultimately published in a really top journal, you know, but I got out of both my grad school and my postdoc with only two published papers to my name, not enough to land, you know, a really top position at a top research university. And then my husband, um, we ended up, he ended up getting a job back in Rochester that he really loved. And so I was on the job market as a professor and I got maybe, I'm thinking like five tenure track job offers over a course of a year and a half or two years. And systematically turn them all down because he didn't want to move. Is that not a lot or is that, I I don't know, like that's a lot. Uh That's a lot. Um, But, you know, they were in places like Seguin, Texas, Uh (laughs) (laughs) you know, Winter Park, Florida, which is in the middle of the, you know, Mosquito Swamp, you know, I mean, Winter Park is actually a nice place, but, you know, it's, it's hot and, you know, it's not, it's Florida, but it's, it's not on the, on the coast, right? So, um, and so my husband, who was loving his job at the time, kept saying uh, at the end of the day, like, no, I don't want to move. I don't want to, you know, derail my career and uproot. And our, we have both have family in this area and stuff. And so I ended up taking a faculty position at a community college locally, which to me felt like um, a massive blow to my ego. You know, the right. part of that wanted to be, you know, a professor at Stanford. Um, and what ended up coming of that, Katya, was that... Um, my my emphasis, which was on cognitive developmental psychology, like how the brain develops and changes based on certain higher order experiences, um, that would have basically set me up at any of those schools I would I would have gotten you know gotten a position at to teach cognitive psychology, neuroscience, developmental psychology. That's about it. Right. And at this community college, I within a year was sort of asked, 
you know, one might say strong-armed, but, you know, when you're <laughs> a low man on the totem pole, any yeah. request from a senior tenured faculty member feels like an arm twist, you know. I was asked to teach this course on the psychology of eating that an adjunct faculty member had developed and then moved to Kansas. <laughs> so, okay, I mean, just, just to jump in here for a second, is that because the psychology of eating is like blowing up and becoming really something people are interested in these days? Why, or, you know, was there, did this professor know something about your history? How did that happen? Well, the adjunct um, actually was someone who worked with people with eating disorders, bulimia, anorexia, and she had a very um, sort of competent eating, um, mindful eating approach okay. to food. And she developed this course because it was her specialty as a psychologist, as a, an eating disorder therapist. She then moved to Kansas and there were like 16 people in the course, like enough that the department didn't want to cancel it. And the, the professor who asked me to teach did know about my food background, did know that I used to be slender, did know that I spent, you know, 20 or 30 hours a week volunteering in a 12-step program for food addiction um, and working with people one-on-one, -on -one, helping them to lose their excess weight. So he knew that it was a passion of mine. He knew that it was an interest of mine, but at that time it was an avocation and not a vocation, if you know what I mean. It was, it was, a, it was an, an interest, but it wasn't yet married with my academic career. But because of that, that fluke of you know, circumstance, I ended up for many years, I think six years in a row, teaching this college course on the psychology of eating. And I totally tweaked the course. I mean, I, I looked at the curriculum and I said, uh, this is all right, but it needs a unit on the neuroscience of food addiction. Like this is a completely incomplete picture about, you know, how people's brains respond to food. Like, you know, just breathe before you eat and it will all be okay. Like that that doesn't include yes. the neuroscience of what's actually like hog tying people to stuff cookie dough down their throat, you know, like, yes. um, so, um, I started researching that, um, for my course and, you know, I, I sort of up leveled my entire, you know, academic cred, so to speak in that subject. So right. yeah, one experience of, and that's just one example of, of uh, that, a great yeah. number of things that in retrospect, you know, the other, the other course that I ended up developing, and this was of my own steam, I, nobody asked me to, was a course in positive psychology. And I ended up getting some training from the University of Pennsylvania in positive psychology. And so a lot of the tools that we use in Bright Line Eating relate to meditation and gratitude and um, things like that. And, you know, social connection and uh, the science of that stuff is in positive psychology. And so well before Bright Line Eating was even a twinkle in my eye, um, I was learning about the science um, because I wanted to teach this community college course in positive psychology and all that science. I mean, the, the, that's how the science came about. It really was a slow burn. And it, 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 I'm lucky that my background is very interdisciplinary. My undergraduate yes. degree is in cognitive science, which means I took courses in neuroscience, psychology, linguistics, anthropology, education, philosophy, all, computer science, artificial intelligence, all these different fields that have little pockets of them that deal with the mind or the brain. And so it was very interdisciplinary. My PhD is in brain and cognitive sciences, which is just about as interdisciplinary. And, um, huh. and then I ended up teaching psychology, just straight up psychology at a community college, which means, you know, psych 101, abnormal psych, clinical psych, just, just straight up nice. psychology. 
And so what you find in the book, Bright Line Eating, um, really comes from an education that you, you, you would have had to have traveled a really windy road to ever sort of get exposed to. It's, there's a lot of different sourced stuff in there because my journey has been kind of, you know, eclectic. And um, so nowhere will you find the constellation of ideas put together the way they are in that book. No one else is talking about the full picture of what happens. And, and really the, the science was guided absolutely by my own embodied subjective personal experience of someone who's wickedly addicted to food and has now for more than 13 years, you know, got, you know, I went from obese to slender and have kept it off now for 13 years and have, you know, at times struggled with the dance of maintenance of, you know, how do you keep an addictive, a food addicted brain at bay? Um, and then working with now th thousands and thousands and thousands of people, helping them to lose all their excess weight and keep it off. It's an embodied experience that no one, I, I don't think anyone else in the world has in the sense that there's not a single published peer-reviewed scientific journal article anywhere showing any program taking a cohort of people, helping them lose all their excess weight and keep it off. Um, right. But that's, that's what we've done now in Bright Line Eating. So we have the first ever model of actually successful weight loss and weight loss maintenance. That's the first one. So, you know, when people say, oh, this helps if to do this, you lose weight, this, this will help you lose weight. That'll, they're talking about like short-term band-aid fixes where people immediately gain the weight back. They're talking about this will help you lose weight for eight weeks and then you'll get fat again, <laughs> like, right. you know, or, or whatever. So, um, yeah. So the science, the science emerged slowly over, over a long period of time. And I remember a lot of the pieces of that puzzle were being pieced together by me as recently as like two years ago. Um, really, wow. it, it took a long time to sort of amass the full picture. That's, that's amazing. And, and so it's, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk later on about how folks can get um, some access to this, this science and really sink their teeth into it even before your book comes out. So I'm excited about that. But I want to jump in with you. You know, I, I'm imagining the list as a listener, I might be sitting on the edge of my seat right now saying, okay, what is bright line eating? What are, you know, what is the solution? You, you know, if, can we yeah. just dive into what this kind of food plan is um, to, to give in a nutshell kind of picture? Yeah. And sure. And Katya, your listeners are, are, are bingers, right? They, That's right. Curb the binge podcast. So people with binge eating right. disorder or, you know, some degree of binging that at least makes them curious and want to listen to this kind of podcast because yes. there's a difference between bingers and, you know, people who just, who graze and have gotten overweight by that, as you pointed out, not everyone with a binging problem has a weight problem at all. Exactly. It's um, really the emotional eating, the compulsive aspect. It's that addictive brain that you've been talking about. Yeah. And some folks who are bingers are underweight, right? They have anorexia too, but that's they have right. the binging form of anorexia, right? So that's a huge range. And so um, the first thing I want to, I want to say a couple things right up front. One is that um, I've seen both happen. Uh, one being that um, bright line eating gets binges under control so that they go away and, and sort of never come back with a lot of daily focus and maintenance one day at a time. But um, bright line eating can um, permanently arrest binge eating. Um, 
I've, I've, oh, and I said both, I guess it's actually three. There's, there's really three trajectories. I've also seen bright line eating like in myself, um, arrest binging to the point where, um, its occurrences are like, you know, a hundred times less frequent than they used to be. You know, like I will go, I've gone as long as, you know, six years without binging, uh, once. And, um, you know, in a bad year, which like 2016 was a bad year for me, there's just a lot of stress and a lot of great year for me. But in terms of my binging, you know, I had a number of binges in 2016, but if I weren't oh doing God, that, bless your honesty. That is just like the most awesome thing. I mean, even if that was the only reason for me to love you, it would be enough, but it's not anyway. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it was just a super stressful year and I was, I was still in the midst of amassing the tools within the bright line eating community for myself outside of the 12 step program for food addiction that I left a while yes. ago. Yes. And, um, so I binged several times in 2016. My guess is, there's no way to know, but my guess is that had I not been doing Brightline eating, um, food would have taken over my life in 2016. I would have gained probably 60 pounds. I would have been depressed in bed all the time. You know, as it was, I probably in 2016 had, you know, I don't know, maybe 10% of the days that were affected in some way by what I'd eaten, you know, um, either that day or the day before or whatever, whatever, you know, um, but still I would say 90% of the days were free. So, um, but then I've also seen Katya, and this is again, that sort of honesty that you keep pointing out. I've seen bright line eating make binging worse. Um, Tell me more. Yeah. Tell us more. Well, um, when it's, it's sort of, there's, there's, there's research on the fact that this happens, but there's no good neuroscience on why it happens in the brain. But it's, if there were no neuroscience on it, the, it would need to be a theory that sort of likens the phenomenon to a rubber band stretching. When you put an abstinence model on a binger and you say, okay, you're not going to eat sugar, you're not going to eat flour, you're not going to eat in between meals, um, there's uh, um, what can happen is things can sort of snap into place and with vigilance at maintaining those bright lines. So for someone who doesn't know, bright lines are clear boundaries that you never cross. The, the easiest example being that if you decide to quit smoking, you're throwing up a bright line for cigarettes. And that's um, a legal term, isn't it? Yeah, it comes from the law, a bright line rule, meaning mm-hmm. a rule that's going to be applied consistently always to produce predictable and reliable results. You just don't do it. Yep. And um, so, you know, AA has a bright line model for alcohol, right? Um, never. You just don't take even a sip of alcohol, even if it's New Year's Eve. Um, and with food, I think a lot of people are under the mistaken assumption that you can't have bright lines for food because you have to eat to live. That's an easy one to dispel because you can just tell someone, well, you do have to eat to live, but you don't have to eat donuts to live. Right. And they go, ah. Oh. You know, um, so you could start as simple as having a bright line for donuts, you know, (laughs) I don't eat donuts no matter what. Um, But the bright lines we recommend in bright line eating are sugar, flour, meals, and quantities. Um, And, and with bright, those bright lines in place, um, there can be sort of the, the feeling inside of the stretching of a rubber band where it gets more and more tense and more and more uncomfortable to the point where when the rubber band is finally released, the binge 
um, ricochet is even more fierce. Yeah, and that's that's sort of what I've experienced. And you know, I haven't been doing bright line eating um, like I didn't do your boot camp. Um, I'm thinking about it, and that's something that I've talked about on my uh, on the show. But I've done you know just from the four bright lines that I saw in you know in the videos and. Um, in your vlog that you've talked about. So I've done that and I've done it for several months now. And I will say, you know, it, it's kind of both in a way, like I get that rubber band feeling and my binges are less frequent. Like there are fewer and further between. Yeah. Um, and you know, there are, there are other kind of more like other kind of psycho spiritual aspects that I'm coming at it from. But I would say that, um, it's just interesting that you're pointing out these three trajectories. I feel like I have a blend of, of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's, I think it's amazing that you're seeing any kind of improvement without working the whole program, to be honest, <laughs> it's such a comprehensive system and there's so much involved and it goes so beyond the food. Um, I mean, it's interesting when you get into the boot camp. there's eight weeks of video modules and you might get, you know, an average of 15 videos each week in each module. And I have no idea, Katya, but if I had to guess, I would guess that like fewer than a third of them are about food. Like, it's just not about food, you know? It's about so much other stuff. I mean, maybe they would be about food, but like about the social aspects of it. Like, how do you interact with other people when they're, you know? But anyway, yes. um, th there's so many tools and so much support that I think goes into being successful. Um, and, you know, the reason that I feel like in integrity recommending Bright Line Eating to a binge eater at all, knowing that it might make yes worse, right. is that, you know, as like a long time binge eater, I mean, I started binge eating in my teenage years easily and, and maybe actually as early as age seven or eight, if I think about it, I think I was, I think I was, when my mom was working and I was home, I was a latchkey kid. I think I was making bowls of cookie dough and binging on them even when I was seven or eight years old. I'm pretty sure. So I, I've been a binge eater pretty much my whole life, I guess. And so from long time experience, I just have I to really, say, mm -hmm. I can just say, I've never seen anything else work. Like, you know, I think the mindful approach, um, can really help a lot, but at its best, in my experience, that just decreases the frequency of the binges, you know, um, and increases awareness around them and can decrease the pain one experiences through them. Yes. That's not a solution either. Like I, you know, and for me, because I did have a weight problem associated with my binging for me, the linchpin on that was, and I was still fat and gaining weight. Like, you know, if I'm mindful around my eating, um, yeah. I, the, 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 the hallmark of the mindful eating approach is permission. Like you have to give yourself permission to give your body what it's asking for. Like when your body is thumping at you for food, it's because it needs permission to eat. Right. And for me, my body just, just sounds that drumbeat so loud and so frequently if I'm not doing bright line eating, that, you know, I'm gaining like a couple pounds a month, you know, by the end of the year, I'll be 20 pounds heavier for sure. Right. And, you know, and two or three years of that, you do the math. So it's like, if something is a problem, you're gonna, you're gonna really address it. But it, I can imagine that for somebody who it's not, if it's not a weight issue for them, if they binge once in a while in their house, they have a pajama day, 
and then the next day they're able to just function normally again, well, then it might not be the first fire to put out in their lives, right? I mean, it's- Totally, totally. And for someone like that, mindful eating might be exactly the right approach. Um, you know, just to bring more awareness to that binge situation. And, you know, I'm not an expert in mindful eating, so I won't describe what that would look like. But, um, you know, for someone like that, the potential repercussions of doing bright line eating and all that goes with it, it might not be what they want at all. Um, I'm so not of the opinion that, that my method is for everybody. Like, I really think it's, it's actually really totally not for everybody. Um, okay. Yeah. So just to, just to recap, right. Bright line eating is a system and it's based on, I'm just going to run through it here so that everyone has a clearer picture. Um, it's a system based on a 12-step program that you did that came out of Overeaters Anonymous, and it has bright lines around what you do and don't eat, and the bright lines, the four bright lines are no sugar, no flour at all, and then um, meals, so you only eat, you eat your three meals a day, you plan what you will eat in advance, right, so you you plan what you'll eat the day before, and then that's what you eat, you don't eat more, and then... Um, and then you don't eat anything, no snacks between meals. And the fourth bright line is quantities. And that's something that um, you've talked about several different ways of uh, working that one. One being actually getting a food scale, measuring your food so that you know exactly how much of each food group, like how much protein to have, how many how much in weight vegetables to eat. Um, and then... And then you also talk about the possibility of just having it be like a one plate and then no seconds kind of thing if the food scale isn't right for some people. So that's the bright line eating method, right? Did I get yep. that right? So, um, okay. And then, you know, something else that's very interesting to me that you talk about is that while you are um, – getting onto this plan and we'll talk more about how people can get how folks can get support getting onto this uh, in a little bit but if someone is um, interested and they're getting on this plan and they're starting to get their food really clean like this in the bright lines you talk about um, willpower and how it's a depletable resource this is something that's been around in science for a little while and I've talked about it on my podcast but that if you're using all your willpower which it does take some in the beginning to try and get these bright lines correct and and really get um, set good habits for yourself around food then you might not have a lot left for exercise is one of the main things you talk about but also you know um, I mean, from my experience, like family and just all the other obligations in life, right? There's a lot. So yeah. one of my major questions to you is like, okay, I have, I'm a mom, I have a job, you know, I teach, I have a business, I have a partner. Um, how, like, if I'm really to take this on and commit to this, how do I do it? I mean, how do I take six months out of my life to get these bright lines right? That's a great question, Katya. And um, that's really the right question. Um, I don't know that it needs to be six, but I would say certainly uh, three okay. or four really, really intensively. And, um, you know, in what I want to, um, what I want to bring you back to, bring you back to Katya is when you first learned to drive. Did you learn to drive a car? You know how to drive a car? You have your license? I do. Yeah. Automatic yeah. only, but yeah. Okay. All right. Even does on, that even count? On, <laughs> yeah, it, it does. It does. Okay. Well, for, um, 
do you remember when you were first learning to drive and how scary and intensive it was? Oh my God, getting on the freeway was like, I almost had an aneurysm. Totally, merging, it, it, speeding up and merging with the flow of traffic on the freeway, right? Yes. Um, seriously intense. And can you picture what that feels like now to do that? Um, in comparison, can you see the reduction in the cognitive load in yes. your life? Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, my six-year-olds right now, well, I, wait, I have two eight-year-olds and a five-year-old. Okay. So my, my daughters right now, so I relate to being a mother and, and being a mother and a business owner and all of that stuff. Yes. It's a lot. And having a, you know, a, a relationship and it's a lot to nurture in life. And my daughters, all three of them still are in this phase. I'm surprised, frankly, how long it's taking of like getting the, the, the teeth brushing habit down. Right. It's ridiculous. Like, yes. okay, brush your teeth. Like, I, I, it's so much effort for me to get them to brush their teeth. And I have one daughter now that the, the teeth brushing thing has become automatic for her. One of my eight-year-old twins, the other eight-year-old twin and the five-year-old still need ridiculous amounts of going <laughs> and reminding and help and all that stuff to brush their teeth twice a day. Okay. So I think I see where you're going with this. Exactly. Yeah. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to feel like it's taking over your life at first. And then at some point, Katya, you're going to go, this is so natural. How did I ever not do this? I mean, this feels like breathing. I mean, I can, I can travel around the world with my Brightline eating program. I can go through pretty much anything. And it just feels like a, a fish in water. Like it's just what I do. And so I, I have to say there is an upfront investment and the payoff on the back end is tremendous. Okay. And it's hard to do with, you know, kids and a business and a job and a partner. Yes, it is. And you would be wise to put everyone on notice, you know, yes. Mommy slash partner slash employee slash whoever is doing this thing for a little bit. And it's a big deal for me. And I would love your support. And, you know, this is kind of the priority for me, but it's, you know, after a few months, it should become automatic and I'll be back, you know, kind of, you know, fully, fully operational again. But it, it is true that it takes uh, like a deep investment, a, a commitment, a, a prioritization up front. Like people who go about thinking that they're going to lose weight or deal with their binging in some kind of like haphazard one-off, like I'm just going to tackle it without really carving out the time to yes. build a system that's going to without sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like it, it does take a different way of living actually. And in bright line eating, we teach you how to do that. It's not about what you eat so much as how you live and, and in some very concrete ways, it's a whole system. So I love that. That's great advice, Susan. And about putting everyone on notice, especially that seems really helpful to me. And I want to um, I want to talk a little bit about your boot camp, but first I want to ask a question. And I don't want this to go too long, but I just want you know from all the all the science that you've looked at, um, my burning question is this: Is it possible? Because you talk just a little background. You talk about addictability itself, and you know listeners have heard us uh, by now say a few times talk about your susceptibility scale. And the susceptibility scale is just a few questions that people can go online and answer, and it will give them idea, an idea of how susceptible they are to food addiction. And um, I came out a 10 on this. And, you know, I think maybe, 
<laughs> yeah, right? But, um, but it's a beautiful thing because then it can, can really prep you and prime you. Like, am I one of these people that needs bright lines or can I be more relaxed? Or I don't know how you look, look at it, but so it's a, it's a, it's a scale one to 10. And, um, and the thing that it brought to mind right away and that's been burning for me is, is addictability itself curable? Is it treatable, healable? Um, what does the science say about that? Um, I think the science says no, actually. Um, it looks primarily like an inborn congenital um, condition, a difference in the way the brain responds to different cue-based stimuli. Um, and, you know, in particular, the way the brain wires to the cues that predict rewards. So um, that's why food addiction is so wicked in, in this society, because um, we've got um, companies spending big bucks to maximize and optimize the cues that predict food rewards all around mm -hmm. us, whether it be signs or commercials or um, the strategic placement of vending machines or Starbucks on different corners or, um, and then we've got a, just a social environment that's um, optimized for food addiction as well with birthday parties and happy hours and um, holiday celebrations and all-inclusive resort vacations and, you know, on and on and on. We really um, do gravitate around food in our culture, don't we? We do. And not particularly great food either. Not healthy food, yeah. Not healthy food. So, um, you know, when you have a highly addictable brain, the difference is that those cues that predict rewards, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the emotions, the times of day, the stress cues, all of that, um, the cues themselves pull you in so hard you can hardly break yourself away. So in rat studies, what that looks like is a lever comes down into the cage and then it gets sucked back up and three seconds later, food comes out into a dish. And that happens over and over again. Rats learn this really fast. The lever comes out, it predicts food is coming. The lever is a cue that predicts a food reward. And the addictable rats, which is roughly one third of the rats um, are like this all the time and one third are somewhat like this. The addictable rats, when the lever comes out, they get pulled toward it so, so intensely and they rub on the lever and they nuzzle the lever and they're so fixated on that lever. Mm -hmm. that it's the lever. Even yeah. keep nuzzling on the lever and miss the food. <laughs> um, and, and that just shows how much that cue becomes a pull for them. It's the cue. Yeah, right. Yeah. And that also kind of it, it illustrates how much the brain is hijacked. Yeah. Because you, I mean, in that situation, you're really not, it, it's not like the higher consciousness that has, you know, that, that has a, that makes the executive de decisions. I mean, to the point where you're not even clear, you can't think straight enough to see that what I actually want is not what I'm moving toward. Yeah. And I, I think we can relate to that on, on many levels. So, okay. Um, thank you for that. Not so uplifting, but realistic piece of news. <laughs> yeah, Katya, you didn't, you, you know, you kind of left a dangler there. You know, I, I do think that it is how I think about it, that if someone's a 10 on the susceptibility scale or higher on the susceptibility scale, what I personally, in my professional and experienced uh, opinion, what I think it means is that they're going to achieve more freedom around food with more structure. Yeah. 
I do. I do think that that's what it means. That something like a bright that's line a approach saying it. Yeah. result in more freedom for them. And for someone who's really low on the scale, something like what I do with food would be like an unnecessary straitjacket. Like they would be like, this is awful. You know, it would be a whole bunch of constraints that they don't need. For someone with a brain like mine, those constraints provide boundaries that ensure my freedom. Like they, yes. they produce a lot of neutrality and clarity and room in my life for things other than food, which is mostly what I want. I don't want to give food any more of my life than I already have. Thank yeah. you very much. I like it. There's a book called The Beautiful Constraint. I have yet to read it, but I think <laughs> it's about that. I think it's about that concept that constraint can create freedom. So yeah. we have about five minutes, Susan, and I want you to tell us about your boot camp, which you have an, an, a new one coming up soon, right? We do. We've got one coming up right here in January. And I'm trying to think of the best way for someone to like get access to the information. Probably the best way, um, Katya, would be for someone to go to foodfreedomquiz.com. That's the quiz we've been talking about that'll tell them what their susceptibility score is and therefore what their best path to food freedom is. So foodfreedomquiz.com. And because we have a boot camp launch going on right now, as soon as someone takes that quiz, assuming that they're not listening to this podcast way after it was released, but assuming they're listening to it right when it was released, yeah. they should get dropped right into um, basically a video that's the video that you were referencing earlier. This is in my very unhumble opinion. Um, I can't <laughs> believe I'm about to say this, but I really do believe this is the best free education in the world on the psychology and neuroscience of food addiction, sustainable weight loss, binge eating, the whole thing, like how food is really affecting our brains for real, for real in this day and age. It's a three video series. It's free. Each video is, you know, 35, 40 minutes long ish. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff in there from my college course and that unit on the neuroscience of food addiction. It's, you know, straight up, you know, dope science. It's awesome. Yeah. And, it's enlightening. And then after that, um, registration for the boot camp will be open. But, you know, the other thing, Katya, is that this year, 2017, we're changing the boot camp so that it's becoming um, available to people when they're ready to hop into it. And um, probably the best way for people to um, access it, you know, if they're listening to this recording later, I think going to food free, uh, foodfreedomquiz.com would still be a really good way. Um, and... At the very least, they'll get on my email list. That way, there's a lot of good educational, you know, carefully written emails that I send out that explain more about the science. And um, then, you know, when we do a boot camp, they'll get they'll get access to it. I love it. Yeah, and 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 just the videos themselves, like you said, um, they're so. I mean, they're worth so much. They're really this is gold, and you don't have to you know, be ready to commit to anything in order to watch these videos, get a ton of great free education and then decide, right? I mean, it's, um, I think now I, I watched the video series the last time you guys went around and it's only now that I'm starting to be like, okay, I feel like I might be ready to do the boot camp, And, um, and so that's beautiful. I'll throw that also up on the website so folks can, um, can, can link to it from there. Yeah as well. And you have your book just, just so that we, um, we give folks all the different ways they can reach you. You have the book coming out on March 21st and, um, that will probably be available at booksellers everywhere. 
right? And yeah, Amazon and everywhere. things like that. Yeah, Barnes and Noble right on a end cap or a front table, something like that. Yeah, it's being released everywhere. They're printing, I think, 50,000 hardcover copies, which is a big first printing. I hope it sells well. <laughs> right, um, yeah. And, um, and we're in preparation for the book launch, we're actually doing a 14 day challenge starting February 1st, which is, you know, a lighter commitment, you know, a cheaper price point, just sort of a like, you know, if you just want to take a challenge and just see, could you live the Bright Line Eating Way for 14 days? Um, that course is coming out February 1st and, um, you know, brightlineeating.com is going to have a lot of this stuff. Or if someone just, again, takes the quiz at foodfreedomquiz.com, then they'll be on my email list. Um, I just want to say to everyone, you can unsubscribe anytime from my email list. There's an unsubscribe link at, at, at the bottom of every email. So, you know, if you take the quiz, it does mean that you'll get put on my email list, but the, the control is always in your hands on that. You can unsubscribe anytime you want and we'll never give your email out to anyone else. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff coming. Great. I'm so excited. And I really recommend joining the email list. It starts to feel like you're in this community with other folks that are interested um, and, and living the same, you know, fighting the same good fight. So Susan, thank you so much for being with us today. And I wish you the best of luck with the book launch and with this whole printing process. That's exciting. And um, I look forward to speaking with you again. Oh, Katya, thank you so much. And yeah, I can't wait to talk more with you. It's just been a treat to get to know you a little bit. Thank you. Excellent. Yep. Have a great one. You too. I hope you enjoyed that interview. And if it's intriguing for you, please make your way to foodfreedomquiz.com. Susan is kicking off her boot camp soon here, and you'll be able to watch some really informative videos and um, to get information on how to join if that's in the cards for you and if that feels like the next step on your journey. Whatever the next step is on your journey, know that the universe has your back and that I'm sending you lots and lots of love. Take care, and here is the full-length song from Kabe Sao called Mirrors in the Sea.